I have not been shy about how much I love Little Women. We talked about the book all the way back on episode 40 of this very podcast. I've told you time and again that it's my favorite classic and that I read it every holiday season. I have raved about Greta Gerwig's 2019 adaptation pretty much anywhere you can rave about something these days. I actually bought that movie. I haven't purchased a movie since approximately 2008. So yeah, I really love Little Women. I'm also familiar with its sequels, Little Men and Joe's Boys. But when today's guest suggested the Louisa May Alcott books we're discussing on this episode, they were totally new to me. Little Women fan that I am, this was very exciting. For the first time ever, we're actually talking about two titles on episode 104. Eight Cousins was written in 1875. Its sequel, Rose and Bloom, came out one year later. The duo tells the story of Rose Campbell, who we meet as a young orphan and the heiress to her parents' substantial fortune. She's grieving and lonely, and while her aunts are doing their best to be her guardians, her uncle Alec swoops in to see if he can really improve her quality of life. She finds herself immersed in the rowdy world of her many boy cousins and meets a new friend in Phoebe, a young girl who works in the kitchen of the family home. Between Eight Cousins and Rose and Bloom, we follow Rose through her early years of finding herself and falling in love. In this episode, you'll hear us break down Rose's adventures in the two books and try to wrap our heads around the fact that, back in 1875, this was all really progressive and feminist. It definitely doesn't jive with our contemporary conception of feminism. We also consider why there are so many orphans in Kidlet and talk quite a bit about how Louisa May Alcott's real life influenced her storytelling. My guest on episode 104 is Mary Kay Andrews. Mary Kay is the New York Times bestselling author of 27 novels. Hello Summer, her new novel, was an instant New York Times bestseller and is inspired by Mary Kay's background as a newspaper reporter. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her family. In addition to writing quintessential summer reads, she loves home decorating and home renovation. I am so grateful to Mary Kay for taking the time to join me for this episode. It really was such a treat. Follow Mary Kay on Instagram at Mary Kay Andrews. Follow SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and join the Facebook party by searching the SSR Podcast. There's a smaller Facebook group that you may want to check out too. We do a little extra book talking over there, and I share lots of interesting resources and inside scoop on the podcast. That group is growing, and we would love to have you. Find it by searching the SSR Podcast community on Facebook. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know what's coming. That's right. I'm about to run through a few ways you can help support the podcast. What can I say? I appreciate your love for SSR, and I'm here to help you channel it so you can help it grow. Okay, so first of all, please be sure you've left a five-star rating or review on iTunes. All your favorite podcasters are always begging you to do this because it really does help our shows. More five-star ratings and reviews helps you become more visible in all the fancy Apple algorithms. And that means more book lovers finding their way to SSR. I say the more the merrier, so let's make that happen. You can also support SSR by sharing this episode on social media. Take a moment right now, yes, like right now, to take a screenshot of your podcast player of choice. Next, post it to your Instagram story. Tag me at SSRPod before sharing. You can also note what you're doing while you listen. I would love to know. Why not rock your SSR super fandom on the outside with podcast swag? Visit www.ssrpodcast.com shop to get your own SSR bookmarks, stickers, tote bags, and t-shirts. I might be a little biased, but I have to tell you that it's all super cute. Plus, every purchase supports the growth of the show. And finally, I would love to invite you to join the Patreon community. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month, but different levels of support will get you access to different exclusive rewards, including merch, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, and more. And it's a great way to really put your love for SSR into action and to help me keep the show going. 
visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. Shout out to all of the Patreon supporters tuning in now. I appreciate you so much. Finally, let's talk about Libro.fm. Libro.fm is an amazing platform that allows you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks that you can get from bigger companies. They're the same price, too. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Supporting Black-owned businesses is a great way to be an ally in the Black Lives Matter movement, so I would encourage you to choose a Black-owned indie bookstore when you shop for your next audiobook on Libro.fm. Here are a few that are currently partnered with Libro.fm. Semicolon Bookstore, Source Booksellers, Uncle Bobby's Books, and Loyalty Books. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Mary Kay. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Good to be with you. I'm so thrilled. I feel very honored that you're joining us. Well, I think this sounds, the premise sounds like a lot of fun. We do. We have a lot of fun. And it's fitting that you are coming to us for a July episode as the queen of summer reading. I know you have a new book out, Hello Summer. So listeners, if you haven't checked that out, go get yourself a copy. Um, But in the meantime, Mary Kay and I are going to talk about Eight Cousins, uh, which is a Louisa May Alcott book that I was not aware of. You put it on my radar, Mary Kay, and I'd love if you could share a little bit about why it was the book you wanted to talk about. I know that there was sort of a twist in the book you ended up reading, which we'll get to, um, (laughs) but if you have a history with Eight Cousins, I'd love to hear it because it really was brand new to me. Ah, well, I was a big Louisa May Alcott fan as a preteen, young teen. I think because I, you know, I think... like most most people, I read Little Women. And I, of course, because I'd always wanted to be a writer, I immediately identified with the character of Joe, who was a loosely autobiographical character. Um, Louisa May Alcott, from what I read, definitely. She had three sisters, I think. So I started with um, Little Women and worked my... I did Little Men, and I did... Um, and I can remember reading A Cousins, and I was fascinated with that story, I think, because it was so foreign to any experience I'd ever had. I was growing up in St. Petersburg, Florida, and here, you know, that was set in a, a New England town, and the character uh, Rose Campbell finds herself uh, orphaned and an heiress, and her uncle Alec, she becomes his ward. And there are eight cousins, all boys, and they all are very different personality types. And I guess that's what drew me to that book. It was so different from anything, you know, in my experience. And, of course, it was written in the 18... 1875 was the pub yeah. date on it. Yeah, a couple of years after Little Women. Yeah. So, And it was very romantic to me. 
the sequel to Eight Cousins is, is Rose and Bloom. And that's the one I actually went back and reread. <laughs> and that is a very, it's a very, um, I'm sure that's what drew me to that book, that I was, you know, very much of a romantic, um, had lots of, you know, my head was filled with lots of stuff. I think by that time I was probably reading Harlequin Romance, too. Okay. All right. Which could, this could not be any different from that. And, of course, when you read, when you read these books as an adult, you, it, I mean, there's a whole different spin on them. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I, I actually just discovered today while I was getting ready for our interview that there was a sequel. So I did find myself wondering what happened to these characters. So I'm actually kind of excited that you can tell me what happens to all these characters in Rose and Bloom. And I can refresh your memory a little bit on Eight Cousins. I was surprised that I hadn't heard about this book because I too was a huge fan of Louisa May Alcott. I actually read Little Women every year and have for, yeah, I have done that for probably 10 or 12 years. Um, it's like a Christmas holiday season reading tradition that um, is like very near and dear to my heart. I also um, have four, I have four sisters, so I feel very connected to that story. And I have always loved writing. Um, my day job now is as a freelance writer and I um, am going back and doing my MFA in creative writing this fall. So I too was very connected to Joe from a very young age. So yeah, I mean, I love Louisa May Alcott and I had actually just watched for maybe the third or fourth time the um, most recent adaptation of the movie as I was finishing up Eight Cousins. So I was kind of having this oh, like, this like yeah, Louisa May Alcott moment. Yeah, I still haven't watched it, but I definitely want to. It's so good. It's so good. I can't say enough good things about it. So yeah, I was having this, I was kind of having a bit of a Louisa May Alcott week last week. And it was make, it was sort of getting my wheels turning as I was reading Eight Cousins and um, having my memory refreshed on Little Women, although I don't really need that at this point, having read it so many times. But I was sort of in that mindset, which made me think of a lot of parallels and just kind of like the way she tells stories. There are definitely some consistencies. And for me, it's this whole story is very foreign because as I said, I grew up as one of many sisters. Um, and I also have a lot of girl cousins. Like there just weren't a lot of boys in my life when I was growing mm -hmm. up. So um, I really related to Rose in this story that sh that this idea of being surrounded by all of these young men was like very unfamiliar and at first like very uncomfortable for her. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. And I, I think it's also worth noting that I believe Little Women was the oldest book that we've covered on the podcast so far. So Little Women was published in 1868. And we, um, we covered that book about a year and a half ago. Listeners, I'll be sure to link to that episode in the show notes. And this book was published in 1875. So I, I found myself as I was reading it, as you mentioned, you really come at it from a different perspective, of course, as an adult, which I do every week on the podcast. But I think I also had to keep reminding myself, not only are you coming at this from a completely different age, but this is this is really um, a story that's rooted in a much different time period. So where I otherwise may have been like a little bit more put off by certain ideas um, or certain elements that maybe were deemed as progress, they were because this was written in 1878 or 1875. So I had to keep reminding myself like, no, this is actually a very progressive book for its time. Yeah. And I, you know, I went back and read some, uh, just some biographical material about Louisa May Alcott. And, I, you know, I've, I've been a lifelong fan. I remember years ago, I was in Concord on business, and I made a point of going to see um, the Orchard House, mm. which is open, and it has been open to the public since 1912. And so you can see the she with her first money she made from publishing, she bought a soapstone sink. 
to the house. And, um, so cool. Oh, I would love yeah. to go see that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very tiny little house. And it's right adjacent to uh, Mark Twain's house, actually. Cool. Yeah, um, Mark, no, Mark Twain's house is in, or Hart, it's in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. Not far away. Yeah. So I, on this trip, I made I had a little literary pilgrimage. Oh. Seeing seeing the Orchard House and then reading about her, and I was interested that she was considered very much a suffragette mm-hmm. at the time, and very much about women's rights, and uh, never married, and and I guess that was by her own design. And then when you read Eight Cousins and Rose and Bloom. If you look at it by, but in the light of today, you think, oh my gosh, she let her uncle tell her what to read. Yeah. I mean, she's 20, 19 or 20 years old in uh, Rose in Bloom, and she's reading a French novel, which she's embarrassed about. She thinks it's flighty, and her uncle basically just takes it from her. And I'm thinking, what? You know, that is, but back in the day, you know, you have to keep remembering the time frame the book was written during. Yeah, I was struggling in Eight Cousins. There's a moment where um, Uncle Alec, who is her guardian, um, you know, he comes he comes to pick her up kind of from this situation where she's been living with all of her great aunts, and he's decided that he's going to try to take this one year and see if he can bring her out of her shell. Because when we meet her, she's I, I think now we would classify her as depressed. Um, she's yeah. physically not well. She's mentally really struggling to, like, connect with people. Um, she seems to, in my opinion, kind of be losing her well to survive. She's lost her parents. She's lost her home. It's a very sad situation. And Uncle Alec comes in kind of as this like magical, charismatic hero in some ways. And I was very taken with him throughout the book. But there was a moment, I would say about two thirds of the way through where Uncle Alec and her great aunts are um, sort of arguing about what Rose should wear. And she's 13 and eight cousins. And we're sort of led to believe that Uncle Alec is this like progressive feminist guy because he argues on Rose's behalf that she shouldn't have to wear these like fussy 19th century garments like corsets and high heels and all of these things. Um, And he wants her to wear something really simple and more comfortable. And you can tell that Louisa May Alcott is kind of trying to drive home the fact that this is like a victory for Rose and like a victory for feminism because she gets to be comfortable. But it was also very clear that like Uncle Alec was taking it upon himself to choose what she was wearing. And and he was kind of like taking that away from her, from the aunts. And sort of like, you know, the 2020 feminist in me was like, hey, you know, like maybe, maybe we shouldn't really be dictating that anyway. But then I had to take a step back and remember that, A, for for a man to even really care that she be comfortable to begin with was probably a very big deal for him to kind of have done the research to understand Mm -hmm. what would lend her the best quality of life, what would be most comfortable. I had to have a new appreciation for him. And I think um, he's sort of trying to bring this new level of equality to the family because there are all these other boys. So all of these aunts around them have learned to raise young men and haven't had to raise a little girl before. So Uncle Alec is trying to bring in all these new philosophies. And to us in 2020, some of them don't seem especially progressive. But at the time when Louisa May Alcott wrote this book, they were very progressive. Yeah, yeah. And you know, her her father and mother were very much into uh, educational reform. They were transcendentalists. That's a hard word to say. It is. <laughs> when you look back at the, the atmosphere she was right when she was writing, I thought it was interesting that she, I mean, for most of her 
her childhood and young adult years, her father could never support the family. And I and they live really very closely to poverty. And of course, in Eight Cousins and Rose and Bloom, she's in the lap of luxury. She has all the money she could ever need. She could do whatever, you know, when she becomes an adult, she does have choices. And I don't think because of the her father's inability to make money, there were many choices. She had to go out and make a living and support the family. Well, and she does have that drive, even in Eight yeah. Cousins. I think it's a little, you know, we see it being guided in interesting ways, I would say. But she does have an understanding about the importance of, like, finding her own place yeah. and, and sort of establishing her own skills. She comes to Uncle Alec at some point and is like, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think I need to figure out, like, what I'm going to be good at, like, what my trade's going to be. Yeah. And, of course, in the margins, I'm writing, like, yes, girl, like, you do this. Um <laughs> And I have to I have to just read this excerpt that that was his response because again, like in the moment I was really kind of frustrated with Uncle Alec because I was like, dude, I just don't know that this is the way you should be guiding her. But the way he speaks to her about it is is from a perspective of what I would say is he wants to give her a choice. So he says to her, There is one very excellent, necessary, and womanly accomplishment that no girl should be without, for it is a help to rich and poor. And the comfort of families depends on it. This fine talent is neglected nowadays and considered old-fashioned, which is a sad mistake and one that I don't mean to make in bringing up my girl. It should be a part of every girl's education, and I know of a most accomplished lady who will teach you in the best and pleasantest manner, housekeeping. And I want to make it very clear that there's absolutely no shame in being like a fantastic housekeeper. I I love to clean my house. I love to cook. I take great pride in my home. Um, I think it's just interesting the way that they speak about keeping a home in 1875 versus now you know I think it's interesting that she comes to her uncle and very clearly says like I want to learn a trade I want to learn something that's going to make me money and his response is to say oh you should just become a really good housekeeper because people aren't doing that anymore yeah yeah and that happens too in Rose and Bloom she makes her debut Mm. and at first she doesn't want to do it and then her friends her young lady friends sort of shame her into it and she tells her uncle, and, and Uncle Alex doesn't want her to do this. He thinks it's frivolous and self-indulgent and a waste of money. But she says, I'll do it for three months. You know, go to all the parties, have the parties. I, I don't want to deprive myself of this pleasure. I might not have it again. And her uncle says, okay, but after three months, we need to revisit this. And I think it's, it's another interesting part of this book. At the end of it, she says, I'm sick of it. I, I'm, you know, I can't keep coming home at two in the morning after all these parties and dancing. And, and she wants to do something with her life, but she does. She hasn't been, she hasn't been prepared to do anything except in the end, she decides she'll be a philanthropist. Hmm. She has, she has a fortune. She's an heiress. She starts, you know, thinking of ways that she can do good. So she buys two old buildings in Boston and turns them into homes for um, young working women. Hmm. And then she, I think she um, gives money and starts going to an orphanage and is very taken with the orphanage. That is her. She finally sees this is what I'm good at. She, at first, she doesn't think much of that. Hmm. She, tells her uncle, she tells Uncle Alec, I'm, I'm so disgusted with myself because I'm, I'm no use to anybody. And her uncle says, you, you know, he lists all the things she's good at, being a great niece to him and helping you know, the arthritic Aunt Plenty, whichever one it was. And he lists all those things. And he said, you founded this, these buildings where you, young women are living and the orphanage. And so then he, but she can't see 
her own worth until he has he has to tell her this is your worth. Hmm. I can't help it. My wheels are turning so much with comparisons to the March sisters. It's so hard not to because I know that's that story so well. I I can't help but think of Meg going to the debutante balls and that just so not being Joe's thing. Um, And it sounds to me like Rose in her more grown-up state in Rose in Bloom has a lot of similarities with Joe, but she just has some more resources to use to, like, make her dreams a reality. Yeah, I think this was I think this was Louisa May Alcott's way of removing herself. This is her fantasy. Mm. You know, she didn't live that life, but she, I think she must have had a lot of fun imagining what it would be like to have be surrounded by attentive, adoring boy cousins and have a male father figure who did take care of everything and, you know, have all this wealth at her fingertips, none of which she had in her real life. What is Uncle Alec's role as Rose gets older? You've touched on it a little bit, but I'm curious because we we see him guiding her so much in these kind of preteen years in Eight Cousins. He's advocating for her in a lot of ways, which I liked to see because clearly whatever the ants were doing is not doing much for Rose's health. As she gets older in Rose and Bloom, is he still sort of like playing that kind of role? Is he a little more hands-off? At the beginning of Rose and Bloom, they've, they've come back from, I think, two years abroad. Okay. He decides to take her to Europe to sort of get her away from what he thinks could be frivolous influences. And so they've been abroad for like two years. And when they come back, then it's like, okay, now it's time for, and she decides too, it's time for me to decide what I'm going to do with my life. And he is very much guiding that. And then, of course, there's romance. Yeah, we have to talk about the romance because I I found a few spoilers when I was researching that she does she end up with Mac, her cousin? She does. Okay, this is something that I think we all just have to wrap our heads around as a thing yeah. that happened in the 19th century because when I read that, I was like, "Oh, that's interesting," but then I remembered like I've read plenty of other books and I've seen movies where this was sort of commonplace. Um, but there is a moment in in Eight Cousins where there seems to be a kiss, but it's kind of unclear what kind of kiss it is. And I actually had a big question mark next to it um, in the margin of my book. And it says, what kind of kiss is this? I mean, it's clear that they have this chemistry building and this relationship building in Eight Cousins. Mac gets um, a really serious injury to his eye and Rose is the only one who's really able to lift his spirits and to keep him company. Um, And then when Rose gets sick later on in the book, the roles switch and Matt kind of comes in to console her and take care of her. So it's clear that something is happening. But when I saw that they end up together in Rose and Bloom, I was a little surprised. So when you told me that you actually read that one, that was like my number one question is what happens with Rose and Mac? Well, you know, there's first, there's a, um, her other cousin, Charlie, who's very dashing. He's the family Beau Brummel. Everyone adores him. He has women throwing themselves at his feet. But he also seems to have an alcohol problem, Mm. which makes Rose is adamant that she will not have it. And Uncle Alec is adamant that she should not put up with this. And so, you know, there's a there's a very um, it's high tragedy. I'll just say that for people who haven't read it. And you can almost see it coming. But yeah, the idea of being wooed by not one but two cousins and the fact that the aunts all assume one of these cousins will 
marry her because they're the only ones fit for her. Plus, she has a fortune. Yeah, it's like the aunts, at least in Eight Cousins, are kind of jockeying to yeah. see, like, you know, which one of us can have their sons spend the most time with Rose, especially as she's becoming, like, a little bit brighter and happier. And as you right. say, she has all this money. I think I didn't pick up on that at first because I was like, oh, they're her aunts. Like, that. why would they do that? But as I got further into it and I saw the relationship with Mac developing, I had to remember that that was not unacceptable. I mean, if you, if you, if you're a Downton Abbey fan, you remember that, you know, yes, you would marry a cousin because then you keep the money in the family. That's not the motive for what happens with Mac. It is the motive for, you know, some of the other cousins that briefly pursue her, but Yeah, it was pretty common back then for cousins to marry. I will say that they had a very sweet relationship. I mean, in their younger years, again, we're we're talking about Rose being 13, Mac was 15 in Eight Cousins. And and they seem to connect at a pretty deep level, uh, especially at that young age. Like, it's hard to have that kind of a connection. But she sees him, I think, for who he is. He's teased by a lot of the other cousins because he's the bookworm. And that's kind of his comfort zone. He loves school. He loves to learn. He's not quite as physical as some of the other cousins who love to like wrestle and do sort of more stereotypical like boy stuff and I think Mac kind of identifies in Rose even earlier than other people that she has a brightness within her that's kind of just being coaxed out and he's able to pull it out of her more so than the other cousins so I I did think that their connection was really sweet um, and I liked that it was clear she was learning something about herself from spending time with him and vice versa but it was a surprise to find that they went the distance I guess in book number two I was struck by the metaphor of a rose Mm. because throughout the book it's like her petals are slowly unfolding and revealing the true woman to herself and to those in her family. And so, you know, you just have you have to sort of take it in the in the way it was written and 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 the time period it was written. Very romantic. I was struck by how pious everything everyone was. Yes. It was like I have to find a way to be useful and I will be worthy of you. They talk a lot about being worthy of each other. Hmm. Well, she talks in Eight Cousins quite a bit about just being worthy generally, Um, not of anything in particular, but like it seems to be one of her biggest goals to just be worthy. And you have to wonder like where a kid gets that, but it seems like it's pretty much baked into their family culture. Yeah, I think it's baked. It was baked into the into the um, time period. That's that too, of course. Um, and I think the piousness, at least in Eight Cousins, to go back to that book again, it's it shows up in little ways too. So I think I can count even quickly in my head three or four chapters that somewhat are tied to the notion of quitting smoking and the importance of that. You mentioned um, that, of course, Charlie has a drinking problem or a perceived drinking problem in Rose and Bloom. In Eight Cousins, they also talk about, you know, reading the right kinds of books. There's a lot of judgment placed on different kinds of lifestyle choices, but I, I think you see shades of that in Little Women, too. I think Louisa May Alcott really has some morals that she wants to get across. And because she was speaking to young readers at this time in history, it makes sense to me that she would really kind of lay down those laws fairly explicitly about kind of how to live the right kind of life. As I'm reading, I'm wondering what connected me with this book at the, you know, when I was 12 or 13 years old, what was it that drew me into this book? 
because there are so many themes of Thoreau and Emerson, which I had never heard of at the time, and lots of classic Greek mythology, which totally would have gone over my head. And I guess it must have been just the idea of a family, of a a big, raucous, close, loving family. And I guess that's what drew me into the story. And then, of course, with, with Rose and Bloom, I know the attraction would have been the idea of a, of a romance. Yeah, I mean, I think she does find her place in this big, raucous family. And I think anyone who comes from a big family or has experience with the big family, yeah, I think you can relate to like what it feels like to find yourself within that sort of broader collective and sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard being part of a big family because it's easy to feel like you get lost but I know that being one of so many sisters I also over time have learned about myself sort of in contrast with my sisters or the way that I'm able to like contribute to my family or maybe my shortcomings within my family um, have become clearer to me because I have so many people around me and so I learn about myself that way. So I will say that something that I wasn't crazy about in Eight Cousins was that it seemed like one of Rose's key takeaways from being part of this big family for the first time was that her role should be to like take care of all of these boys which I actually I just finished Untamed by Glennon Doyle which I highly recommend but sort of one of her main theses in that book is like of course you know if you are a nurturer if you are a lover like nurture and love but it's unfortunate and and can be dangerous when girls or really anybody is brought up with the belief that like their inherent value is to just like take care of other people all the time and that's something that I have struggled with as like a people pleaser so I as I was reading this and having just finished Untamed and you know battling my own like people pleasing tendencies I just wanted for Rose like not to take that on and especially because there's this kind of like weird gender divide happening I I wanted her to feel like she could care for her cousins because she wanted to and not just because that was her role so I for me to like really I guess I don't want to say buy into her journey because, of course, her journey is what her journey is. But for me, it was easier for me to appreciate her journey from a 2020 perspective by stepping back and just being like, she found part of herself in this instead of really kind of sticking to that narrative that she had of herself was like, which is like, I'm a nurturer. Like, I take care of boys. I was just happy that she found some piece of herself in that experience. Yeah, and I and I think it she matures in Rose and Bloom, and and when she recognizes that Charlie, who very early on tells her he loves her and wants her to marry him, and she has to be strong because he's a partier, and she has a discussion with Uncle Alec about it, and he and he says, you know, it is not it is not your duty to make a man of him. He has to make a man of himself. Hmm. So she has to be strong and say, no, nope, if you're going to be drinking and partying. I won't have anything to do with you. And then I thought, I I thought, okay, now you can see a little bit of, you know, her suffragette, of the author's suffragette leanings and saying, I don't have to accept your shortcomings. But then you get back to everybody blames Cousin Charlie's weaknesses and his drinking. Everything that's wrong with him, they all blame on the fact that his mother never reined him in. His father went to India to get away from the mother. Right. But it's his mother's self-indulgence that has ruined Charlie. Yeah, that's not great. That's not a great look. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a great look. (laughs) Yeah, it it feels like Louisa May Alcott was like kind of trying to assert 
her feminist beliefs like in in little fits and spurts throughout the book without going too far which like I have to feel for her because if you are a woman writing in the late 19th century and you're trying to be successful and you want people to read your work you obviously can't come off as too radical and I'm sure she knew that a lot of especially women and young people during this time period would really like be taken with this idea that boys would lavish attention on you as a 13 year old and then you would just give that right back to them as like the nurture and the family and that I'm sure felt like very mainstream and comfortable at this time but she has like little nuggets so at the end of the book rose says uncle i have discovered what girls are made for to take care of boys and i'd like to take a pause to say i didn't like that line but she goes on to say phoebe laughed when i told her and said she thought girls had better learn to take care of themselves first but that's because she hasn't got seven boy cousins as i have and alex says she is right nevertheless rosie and so are you for the two things go together and in helping seven lads you are unconsciously doing much to improve one lass so alec is kind of like the one saying to her as you said in rose and bloom he's the one saying to her okay okay i'm glad you feel good about taking care of these boys but your friend's right. Like you have to take care of yourself first and it's okay to do both of those things. And I think that that idea captures kind of both sides of, of what I hate to say is still like this ongoing debate about what feminism means. Like being a feminist doesn't mean that you don't want to take care of men or that you don't like men. It just means that you also take care of yourself as a woman and like take care of the women in your circle. So I feel like Louisa May Alcott's kind of like nodding to some of those ideas at this very early stage. At, at that period of time, they would have been too revolutionary for her even to, she could never have grasped them. Yeah, I think and, so too. Yeah, you know, and that was probably a reason why she never married. She died of a stroke at 55, right after, like within days of her father's death. And she um, took in her niece, actually. Yeah, I did a lot of research about her for our Little Women episode. Yeah. And it's escaping me now, but I do remember, I remember there being a lot of conversation about how she never married. Right. Apparently, when she went to Europe at some point, there was some kind of a maybe a suggestion of a romance with a European man. But but what I read didn't even say it was any it was meaningful. It was when she came back, her sister who died quite young, uh, May, was it who died? She had a daughter and named Louisa Lulu, they called her. And Louisa May Alcott um, adopted her and uh, raised her. Of course, she was little girl was 10 when Louisa May Alcott then died. Right. Gosh, there's just so much. It's so interesting to think about the autobiographical stuff and and how that related to the the story she told and and why she told the story she did. I think um, Eight Cousins and uh, Rose and Bloom are probably two of her more romantic books. Mm. I can remember when I read Joe's Boys being so disgusted with her. Yeah. With Joe for settling for this old, lame German man. I know. (laughs) Such a, I mean, I know we're not supposed to want her to end up with Laurie. Like, I know we're supposed to be happy that she doesn't, but I just, every time I read the book, I I still want her to end up with Laurie. I know. I know. And I think, uh, I wonder if this wasn't her indulging her more romantic side, first with eight cousins and then um, with Rose and Bloom, because Rose, has all kinds of suitors throwing themselves at her and and, um, the only two she ever even considers and loves are her cousin Charlie and her cousin Mac. It's a whole a whole different world. I'd love if we could talk a little bit about her friendship with with. I mean, it's spelled Phoebe, but I was 
Yeah. I was saying in my head, Phoebe. Yeah, I think it is Phoebe. Because I, I read that that friendship continues into Rose and Bloom and, yeah. and remains a fairly significant relationship. In, yeah. in Eight Cousins, they meet because Phoebe is working in the aunt's house as yeah. um, a cook, as a maid. Yeah. Um, she also is orphaned. She's working there because she really has nowhere else to go. And I think she serves as such a great foil for Rose because... You know, early on, Rose is in such a bad spot. She really feels, as I mentioned, she feels like she's kind of like lost all will. And like her, Phoebe is an orphan, but she has even fewer resources. I mean, she has nothing. She doesn't have anyone to help her. She doesn't have any money. So she's left to work in this house to earn money um, and to survive. And so I think, you know, as readers, it's it's like a good emotional check, like a gut check of like, okay, so things are pretty bad for Rose. And it's, it's really sad that she's lost her parents. And now she's kind of like not sure who she's going to be living with or who's going to be taking care of her. But let's look at this other girl who's really, like, on her own. So for me, that was a good gut check. Phoebe and Rose strike up an interesting friendship throughout Eight Cousins because Rose realizes pretty early on that she needs to help Phoebe in some way. Um, And I think she does that effectively in some cases and then not so effectively in others. She is learning about the art of sacrifice from Uncle Alec, and he tries to explain to her that, like, true sacrifice is about doing something with absolutely, you know, no promise of getting anything in return and not even necessarily telling anybody that you made this sacrifice. It's just about doing it for the sake of making life better for someone else. And Rose follows that up by sort of secretly negotiating this swap between her and Phoebe so that Phoebe can go on a vacation in Rose's place. And then Rose will go back to the house to cook for her. Um, So she's kind of like trying her hand at different kinds of sacrifices and figuring out like what is going to be comfortable for Phoebe, what's going to feel fair for both of the girls Mm -hmm. she then offers to adopt phoebe um which was sort of sweet and like such like a girlish moment of like i don't know what this means but i really want to take care of you and then in the end they strike up a deal um alec and rose to take care of phoebe's education although phoebe's still going to be kind of working for them which was a weird twist and i i found this really sweet and interesting personal essay in the toast about how um, Phoebe and Rose demonstrate this like very specific kind of best friendship. And I just wanted to share the closing paragraph from that piece because I think it really captures their relationship really well. The writer says, Everyone remembers Louisa May Alcott for Little Women and the bonds of family she portrayed in that book, but the friendship she paints in Eight Cousins and Rose and Bloom is much more compelling to me. It stretches across years, overcomes social barriers, and fulfills the needs of the two women in expected and unexpected ways. Phoebe's love story with Archie and Rose's with Mac are both lovely, but it's Rose and Phoebe's friendship that has formed their characters and turned them into the women that they are. I think it's interesting. It's an upstairs-downstairs kind mm-hmm. of friendship. Yeah. With both of them very conscious of the barriers that they might or might not cross. And Rose is more than willing to cross those barriers. And, of course, Phoebe's always thinking about the propriety of that kind of friendship. But um, yeah, it's a it's a really sweet and moving love love story between these two women, young women. Where does Phoebe end up in Rose and Bloom? Because when we say goodbye to her and eight cousins, she's really excited about the prospect of getting to further her education thanks to Rose and Uncle Alec. It seems like things are going to turn around for her, but at the same time, like she's still going to be working. So it's kind of hard to say like what's going to be next for her. Yeah, well, she goes to Europe with Uncle Alec and Rose. Okay. And comes back and she's been studying music and it's understood that 
she will pursue uh, a career in music. And then very slowly it becomes aware my cousin Archie and Phoebe have fallen in love. And that is, you know, that's sort of, that's forbidden, mm. you know, that the cousin, one of the cousins, eight cousins would fall in love with a woman that they all have regarded as very sweet, but she's a servant. Right. So um, when, I guess it's Aunt Plenty objects to Archie and, and uh, Phoebe marrying, Phoebe declares that she'll go off and she'll have her music career. So she gets a job as a soloist. Oh, wow. In a church in another town that's only, in the book, it's only, you only see the letter L. So I don't know what town it is. It's somewhere in New England. Okay. So she goes there and she makes a, a, a name for herself as a church. Yeah, I guess you got paid to be in a church choir. She's a soloist. And she has, I think she has students that she's teaching. So she does go off and um, she says she wants to make, she's going to go off and make herself worthy, uh, a worthy woman. So that uh, Archie can persuade the family to let him let him marry her. So the lovers are separated, hmm. and then there's a there's a parallel separation because once uh, Mac lets Rose know that he's in love with her, she's just not ready for it yet, and so he she, he leaves and goes at the same time where Phoebe is, and he's writing poetry. Oh, of course, of course he is. Oh, well, of course. He's been, he's been going to, I guess, the equivalent of med school. Okay. But he's practicing medicine. But when he goes off, he, uh, you know, he's always been a writer and a dreamer. And so he, he goes off and publishes poetry and he publishes a book of poetry. And it's a, it's a big success. Oh, I love that for him. Yeah. And then that makes him worthy of Rose's love. I do. I do love like the romantic elements of it. I might have to read on to Rose and Bloom at some point because I think I, I really like the way that you've laid out how these characters continue to move through life. I think it's really romantic. And, and Eight Cousins was long. I mean, it, it's a long book on its own. So it makes sense that the author felt like she had to bring it into a second book. She had a lot to say about these characters. Yeah. She, she really did. And, you know, it kind of makes me wonder if she'd had more time, if she would have written more about the other cousins, if she would have written a book with Phoebe and Archie. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because some, you know, some of the books that I read for the podcast, I've read as a kid. So I, I kind of come into the conversations with my guests with a nostalgic attachment. And so even if I feel as though the book doesn't hold up or I'm not seeing, I'm not really seeing what I loved about it as much as an adult, like I can't help but still love it because yeah. of the nostalgia piece. Yeah. And I think that makes it very easy for me to recommend it for other people to read because I'm like, oh, you'll love, you know, I loved it, you'll love it. I think what's interesting about Eight Cousins is that I, I did sort of an informal poll on my Instagram and I asked if people uh, who follow me were familiar with this one. And very few people had heard of it, which oh, I thought was interesting. Um, everybody's heard of Little Women. Not as many people have heard of Joe's Boys and Little Men, but Eight Cousins was new to most of my following. So I'm actually really excited to get to introduce it to people. But I'd love your thoughts on like, you know, I, I, th I think that for me, of course, I'm coming into this conversation. I never read this book before, but I do have this fondness for Louisa May Alcott yeah. because of my Little Women obsession and my, you know, yearly mm -hmm. Little Women tradition. But I, I'm wondering if, you know, if people have never heard of this book and if they 
don't have any nostalgic attachment to it, and maybe they're not super fans of Louisa May Alcott the way that I am, I wonder how they would respond to this kind of book. Because I'll recommend any book to anybody, because I just think the more reading, the better, of course. But I just, I'm wondering, with a book like this that does seem to be sort of low on a lot of people's radars, or at least in my community, you know, if they don't have any nostalgic attachment, I I wonder if they would be able to kind of, like, do some of the mental gymnastics that I did to explain away, like kind of the icky gender dynamics and that kind of stuff. I mean, of course, we have to remember that it was written all of these years ago, but what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think it's going to take a reader that can get past all the moralizing yeah. and pontification to find the sweetness in the story, which is a story about, I mean, everyone loves a little orphan story. Yeah. <laughs> It reminded me in a lot of ways of The Little Princess or A Little Princess. There were a lot of scenes with Uncle Alec, and I haven't read that book in years. I'd like to for the podcast, hopefully soon, but a lot of moments in this book reminded me of that book. I think it's a trope, and I'd never thought of it before. I think it's a literary trope. Mm-hmm. Poor little orphan girl yeah. who, I mean, it's an orphan Annie, and, you know, yeah. it's not a coincidence that Little Orphan Annie was so po- hugely popular during the Depression years. Everybody was reading Little Orphan Annie because everybody wanted to believe someone rich and good would save them from whatever was happening in their lives. So I think there's a there's a fondness for an orphan story and an orphan story where the little orphan girl is rescued and finds love and finds hope and you know redemption. I mean, I when I think back to it, I think of another book that I loved at that same age, Heidi. Oh yeah, I love Heidi. Right? Yep. Another orphan story. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We could be doing an MFA here on uh, orphans in in literature. Yeah, I'm going to ask for my money back for the fall <laughs> semester because this is all that I need, Mary Kay. I'm just going to, you and I are going to have a YA kid lit orphan story specific MFA masterclass. Okay. And you know, then you, go, you can go even to look at Madeline. Yeah. Also. Madeline, also an orphan. Yeah, we've we've talked about it here and there on the podcast because it is it's shocking how many of the protagonists in like our favorite most beloved kid stories are orphans when we meet them. And I asked a few guests like why they think that that's so appealing. And actually, your point about somebody wealthy coming in to save you that hasn't come up before. What we've talked about on other episodes is how when when we meet characters as orphans it kind of like clears the field for them to have different kinds of adventures and to like establish themselves differently which I would say what we have in eight cousins is like more of like an emotional adventure like she's not going off and like fighting dragons or going on quests which is what you see in kind of more adventure stories for kids but I like I like the idea that you know you can still have like a quiet little adventure and find yourself it's just easier to find yourself maybe when you're starting fresh like like roses when we meet her well and you take it back to to the boxcar yes oh yeah Mm -hmm. which I love yes I didn't read the boxcar children until I was in college I took a class in children's literature as an elective and was introduced to that. Maybe I read them when I was a little kid. I don't know. But um, then when my kids were young, they loved the boxcar children. And I can remember we wouldn't, we wouldn't let our kids have a dog because we had an unfenced yard. And also because my husband and I worked full time and we didn't have a fenced yard and we had a big old house and we just could not take on one more thing. So we used to always say, no, we can't have a dog because of all these reasons. And at some point, my son, who's now 33, reminded me just a few years ago, you know, mom, 
No one used to piss me off that you wouldn't let us have a dog. I mean, the boxcar kids had a dog. And <laughs> they could handle it. <laughs> have a dog, and they were orphans. That's so funny. Well, listeners, I'll link to our episode on the boxcar children too because we did we talked a lot about orphans in that episode. Um, that's another good example. So, Mary Kay, on the whole, reading Rose and Bloom again, kind of hearing me run through a brief summary of eight cousins over the course of our conversation have these stories held up for you on this reread or do you feel like they've they've let you down a little bit compared to your memories of them from when you were younger well maybe there's a little bit of a letdown although honestly when cousin charlie died i cried oh i cried yeah so maybe maybe they do hold up and maybe and maybe um i had made a conscious decision to be tolerant of the very flowery victorian language yeah. And the and the pontificating and the um the piousness of it all. You have There's to brace a, yourself. When you go into a book like this, like you kind of know what you're getting into. Yeah, I you know, I, I can't imagine my ten year old granddaughter who is an avid reader, but she loves fantasy. Mm. I can't imagine her as a ten year old cutting through this language, which is, you know, a little bit it's a lot. It is a lot. And there's not a lot of action, which is not what kids of 2020 are used to. It's a lot. And even I'm, as as a 29-year-old who's going back to all of these books, I'm learning, you know, where, what language is important. You know, what, when I'm reading so much for the podcast, what do I really need to get into versus, like, what can I skim if I need, you know, things like yeah. that. Like, there's not a lot of action in these books. And so you are reading it for the beauty of the language, which is, I mean, she's an incredible writer. So you have yes. to appreciate that. And I've learned sometimes to not get so caught up on like, did I miss something? Like, was there, was there a plot point that I missed? Like, probably not. There probably wasn't a plot point that you missed. It was just pretty. Yeah. The language is pretty dense. Yeah. But um, no, there's, I, you know, all in all, I think there's a good story there. And especially um, if you are an Alcott fan, yes. it's worth it. I agree. Well, I, I like I said, I'm happy to um, have this book on my radar, and I'm really grateful that you gave me a chance to put it on the radar of all of my listeners. I would recommend that you check it out. It's It would be really cozy for like a winter read, I yeah. think, um, yeah. or fall read, just like Little Women. So, of course, I'm going to recommend, since it's still summer, I'm going to recommend that everybody pick up your books, Mary Kay, especially Hello Summer, your new one. But is there anything else that you've been reading lately that you would recommend, like your favorite read of the last couple of weeks? The last couple of weeks, I just finished a historic fiction novel by Kristen Harmel. It's H-A-R-M-E-L, and it's called The Book of Lost um, Names. Okay. And it's set in uh, Nazi-occupied France during World War II. And the protagonist is a document forger. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so there's a split timeline um, between the present day, and then she's in her 90s when you meet her, and then she has this past that she's never revealed to her grown son where during the war she her parents were Jewish and she had to flee and she became a um, document forger. I found a newfound appreciation for historic fiction in the past, I don't know, five or ten years. So I love that a lot. That sounds really interesting, like a, a piece of history that I have not heard before. So I'll have to check that out and I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode, along with links to everything else we talked about today. Mary Kay, I really appreciate your time um, and I hope that you enjoy some good summer reading for the rest of this season. Thanks, Allie. I enjoyed talking to you too. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. 
Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>